right. Well, this is a good start. I like it. So thank you, um, ladies, and thank you, Wyatt, for uh, sharing about First Care. And uh, I, I remember um, an acquaintance of mine, and I had shared something that was of a pro-life nature, and he said, oh, you Christians, you know, you just, you don't do anything to take care of them once they're born. You can see that's not true. We have an opportunity there. So anyway, um, thank you again, and welcome to Oasis Church. We're glad to see you. So uh, this morning, we're going to begin studying uh, what for many people is a troubling passage of Scripture. It's a passage that skeptics and atheists and even some professed Christians would say indicates that God is not nice or God is not fair or the God of the Old Testament is not the same God as we see in the New Testament because the God of the Old Testament is full of wrath and judgment and the God of the New Testament is all nice and gracious and wonderful and merciful. Of course, that's utter nonsense. The God of the Bible of both Testaments is the same God. Only by twisting and perverting the Scriptures could anyone conclude that there are really two different gods of the Bible. Uh, But twisting and perverting the Scriptures is something that many have taken up, either as their professional occupation or as a hobby, at least. They say that God of the Old Testament is not loving, even though the entire Old Testament proves the love of God. They say the God of the New Testament is not full of anger and wrath towards sin, even though the New Testament is full of language about God's wrath towards sin. And Jesus talked more about hell and punishment uh, for sin than almost any other topic. But without understanding some very important concepts about God, this passage we're about to read is indeed difficult to grasp for many people. And it isn't the sort of question you can answer in a brief statement. So I'm going to read the passage, and then we will see what I mean about its difficulty. And it's Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 11. When the Lord your God brings you into the land that you are entering to take possession of it and clears away many nations before you, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, seven nations more numerous than mighty and mightier than you, And when the Lord your God gives them over to you and you defeat them, then you must devote them to complete destruction. You shall make no covenant with them and show no mercy to them. You shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons, for they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you and he would destroy you quickly. But thus shall you deal with them. You shall break down their altars and dash into pieces their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. 
Know therefore that the Lord your God is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and rules that I command you today. Now, there are two main objections that people will have to this passage, and there's some lesser objections. But the first main objection is, how or why could a good God demand that entire groups of people be wiped out? The second is, why can't God's people marry outside their own nation in this case? And I believe there's four very important doctrines to understand in order to answer this question. And Lord willing, over the next four weeks, we're going to use this passage to get into those four doctrines. So if you expected a quick and easy answer to those objections, so that when you meet your skeptical friends and family, I'm afraid I cannot make it that easy for you. Why? Because I can't even do that myself in a few minutes. I can't answer these objections in just a few minutes' conversation, and I doubt that any of us can satisfy the skeptical people in our lives just by giving a brief explanation. So I'm going to encourage you to stick this one out. This may even be the type of series you will want to go back and listen to again once it's complete so that you can better understand the reasons God commanded Israel to eliminate these people and why he would not allow the people of Israel to intermarry with the pagan people around them. I will give you a quick hint, though. Neither of these have anything to do with race. They have to do with keeping the faith pure. So we cannot take these to mean that we somehow have an obligation or a right to kill any foreign people based on this, nor can we say that people cannot marry someone of a different race. That's not the point here. And that's absolutely not a conclusion that we can draw from this. So here are four doctrines or topics that we are going to dive into in the next four weeks to help us understand this passage. The first one is the holiness of God. The second is sin and the dangers it brings. The third is God's wrath. And the fourth is God's sovereignty. That's his authority over everything, including salvation. These four doctrines are intertwined in this passage. They're very important for us to understand, both for the believer and for the unbeliever. For the believer, they're very important because they help us better understand our faith so that we can properly worship God, that we can remind ourselves of the destruction that comes with sin, and that we can call others to faith by presenting the gospel in a clear way. For the unbeliever, Learning these things will hopefully lead them down the path to salvation. Being taught these truths and the work of the Holy Spirit to convict someone of their own sinfulness and convince them of the truth of the gospel may very well bring someone to salvation. So rather than dodge this difficult passage, we're going to take it head on. Sometimes the preacher may feel tempted to gloss over or skip over a passage such as this. I feel no such temptation because as I've been studying this, I believe the teachings in this passage can be very good for all of us to understand and know God better. And when we know him better, we love him better. We worship him better. 
and we live our lives in a manner worthy of our calling in Christ. So we begin with the holiness of God. This topic, by the way, could not possibly be fully taught and treated rightly in just one sermon. In fact, you could speak for your entire life and never meet the limits of talking about God's holiness. Entire books have been written on the topic. If I had to produce a list of five books every Christian should read, The Holiness of God by R.C. Sproul would be on that list. Sproul spent a lot of energy in his ministry urging believers to strive to understand the holiness of God. If he had a pet topic, that would have been it. One reason for this focus is because without grasping at least a sense of the holiness of God, we will always tend to question his ways and his means. We will view his good actions through our human and fleshly lenses and may, God forbid, even conclude that in some cases God was wrong. So the study of the holiness of God is a very important one. And this week, I may just post a blog and give some resources for you to go deeper on this subject than I will be able to do in the sermon today. So what is the holiness of God? I think for a definition this morning, we're going to use this one from the Lexham Survey of Theology, which gives this definition. The holiness of God speaks of God's existence separate from his creation and at the same time to his pure and utterly incorruptible nature. There are many scriptures we could reference to make this point. And one prime example that's often used is in Isaiah chapter 6. The first six verses tell us about something that happened to the prophet Isaiah as he was being Uh, given a commission by the Lord to be a prophet. And it says this, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. In verse 3, the seraphim, which are the heavenly beings, which are mentioned only there in Isaiah, they call to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Then Isaiah sees a demonstration of the holiness of God, and his response is quaking fear. He instantly realizes he cannot stand in the presence of a holy God and live. However, Isaiah is provided a remedy for his unclean lips. A burning coal from the altar touches his lips and cleanses him. This is one of many examples in Scripture of God providing to an unworthy person the means, the cleansing needed 
to approach him. And it is interesting that Isaiah's immediate concern is his mouth or his lips. James wrote of that the area of speech is critical for us to seek holiness with. In James 3, 2, he writes, For we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able to also to bridle his whole body. In the understanding of some Jewish scholars, uh, if a man could live a single day without sin, any man, just one day without sin, it would bring about the end of times. One day without sin would be like perfection in that particular way of thinking. But we know we cannot do it. And perhaps this is why some religious devotees have taken vows of silence, right? Because of the great potential to sin in our speech. Yet the speech we make only reveals the thoughts we have. Such that even in James's view, the one who does not stumble being perfect because they, could, they don't speak wrongly, even what is unsaid, though, does not account for the evil in our thoughts. So none of us could stand before this holy God. Yet we are to worship him in his holiness. Psalm 99.9 says, Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy mountain, for the Lord our God is holy. So God himself is holy. Now let's remember our definition again. The holiness of God speaks to God's existence as completely separate from his creation and at the same time to his pure and utterly incorruptible nature. He's completely separate. And that's what Isaiah recognized. He was not fit to stand in God's presence. And let us not forget that these Israelites that Moses is speaking to in our passage in Deuteronomy also recognized there's danger in the holiness of God for sinful people. They were so afraid of God's holiness, you may remember from several sermons back, that they begged Moses to speak to God for them. They wanted a buffer, so to speak, between them and God. Deuteronomy 5, 23 to 27. And as soon as you heard the voice out of the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders, And you said, Behold, the Lord our God has shown us his glory and greatness, and we have heard his voice out of the midst of the fire. This day we have seen God speak with man, and man still live. Now therefore, why should we die? For this great fire consumes us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God anymore, we shall die. For who is there of all flesh that has heard the voice of the living God speaking out of the midst of fire as we have? and has still lived. Go near and hear all that the Lord our God will say and speak to us all the Lord our God will speak to you and we will hear and do it. That's how afraid the people were when they encountered the living God. They said, Moses, go, go talk to him. Come back and tell us what he said. We don't dare go near him. And, and when Moses encountered the burning bush, he was take, told to take off his sandals because he was standing on holy ground. Many times in Scripture we're told that God cannot be looked upon in his holiness by any person, and the person still live, unless God himself provided for that. Holiness means set apart. So we are also going to look in two weeks at how God's people are holy. 
He set them apart so they're holy. That is God's sovereign choice. And the passage we're looking at today, we see that Moses reminds the people of this again as well. God chose because he chose. Not because they were a large nation. It was simply because God loved them, and so in response to his grace, they were to keep the commands that he gave them. God's holiness is also revealed in the very careful precautions that the priests had to take to approach the holy place in the temple. Making a mistake would mean death. And we see some examples of this. Leviticus 10, 1 through 3. It says, Now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who each took his censer and put fire in it and laid incense on it and offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. In other words, when God told them how to worship him, he said these are the specific ways you're to do it, including even what kind of fire they could bring and how they could bring it. And the fire came out from before the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. They brought unauthorized fire. And Moses said to Aaron, this is what the Lord has said, among those who are near me I will be sanctified, and before all the people I will be glorified. And Aaron held his peace. He couldn't even mourn his own sons because he knew God had set those standards. And that was very serious. The ark of God was also holy. God was very clear that it should not be touched, and he proved how serious he was. We see in 2 Samuel 6, 5 through 7, and David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord. This is when they were bringing the ark back with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of the God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. So God is holy. And the things he set aside for his own, him, his own self are holy, including the people he sets aside for himself. So what does the holiness of God, though, have to do with Deuteronomy 7, where we're at this morning? Everything. Everything. Why did God tell his people to eliminate those seven nations? Because a holy God cannot interact with sin. A holy God is a God of justice, and he cannot allow people to constantly do evil without bringing justice to the evildoers. The Bible Knowledge Commentary says this, the command to destroy them totally, that is, men, women, and children, has often been thought of as unethical for a loving God. However, several points must be kept in mind concerning these people. First, they deserved to die for their sin. Studies of their religion, literature, and archaeological remains reveal that they were the most morally depraved culture on the earth at that time. Now, we may be in competition with being the most morally depraved culture on earth, Immorality is spiraling out of control, and it brings up a fair consideration. That is, where do morals come from in the first place? The individual? Does each of us get to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong? Does it come from our family? Do they tell us? Does our family tell us where we get right and wrong? 
Maybe the local community tells us. Or the society as determined by our elected officials. Or would it be better to have an absolute ruler to set the standards, such as a king? But for many, if not most people now in our society, what they certainly will not tolerate is a God who dictates what moral goodness is and what is unlawful or sinful. Most people do not tolerate that at all. Even people who say that they believe in God, by the way, well, I don't believe God would have imposed morals on me. They'll say things like that. Society has elevated the individual to be at the top spot here, hasn't it? Even families are now told, you can't tell your family member what's best for them. You need to let them choose on their own. Someone just shared an article with me this week that said there are teachers now in some public schools who are telling kids directly, and they've been recorded saying this, that they don't need to listen to their parents. And many of these same teachers tell the kids that they will help them keep secrets from their family. So our society increasingly is telling us we can't impose our family values on our own family members. But really, neither can the community then tell the individual what's best either. Society has no right to tell you anything except that what feels good to you is good for you. The individual rules. So there can be no king, ultimately, and certainly not a God to tell you what's right and what's wrong. And this is the evil that Satan promoted from the beginning. Self is first. No one can tell you what to do. But properly, we would elevate God and his standards those written on our hearts and those written in his word. His morals are known to us. They are ingrained. Take monogamy, for example. I understand some of our young ones might not understand this term, so I will explain it for the kids. Monogamy means that once a man and woman are married, they are to stay with their spouses only. They aren't to be kissing and hugging anyone else other than the one they married. This is God's design for marriage between a man and woman. Here's how we know that monogamy or staying with the one you're married to is ingrained in us because even people who deny God feel the pain of infidelity. Even non-Christians, even non-believers will say they felt the pain of infidelity, which means that a married person did some kissing and hugging with someone other than their wife or their husband. Infidelity causes a deep pain. And you don't have to be a Christian to know and feel that pain. Now, there are people who claim they're okay with that. They may even say they have an open marriage. In other words, the husband and wife may say, we've given each other permission to kiss and hug other people. But they're lying to themselves about the pain and emptiness that brings. In some cases, they just want to have the freedom to live in a sinful way, so they give their partner the same permission. They have a craving or a passion to do evil. And so to make themselves feel better about it, they give their spouse permission to do the same. But there's no love in a marriage like that. In fact, you would really have to despise your spouse to try and justify that. Really, it's just a craving to sin. And not only married people do this, in a society where someone does not want to be held to a standard, they will give others permission to do whatever they want to, right? That's what you see going on in our country today. In other words, they want society's permission to do their sin of choice so they will not correct anyone else for the sins that they are liking either. So it all goes further and further. 
And the holiness of God is not even considered by those who are so bent towards sin. God's punishment, by the way, for this sometimes is just to let them keep sinning. But eventually his wrath for the sin will come. And for those nations Israel was to drive out, the sin had reached the point of God's graciousness coming to an end. His holiness sets him apart, and their sin sets them apart for destruction. Paul writes about how people gives or how God gives people over to their own lusts. In Romans 1, starting at verse 18, we see really this is the answer to the question. I get asked a lot. How come it keeps getting worse in our society, in our world? The Bible tells us exactly why in Romans 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. In other words, we can look around and know there's a God just by observing the creation around us. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they came futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous degree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them but give approval to those who practice them. Do you see what it's saying here? What Paul is saying is that God saw the sin. He was not ignorant to the sin. And his punishment is to let them keep sinning, and it gets worse and worse. And then at that last verse, not only do they want to sin, they want you to approve of it. You see, when people deny that God has the ultimate authority to set the rules, when they ignore that he's a holy God who deserves our glory and honor and respect, that he's a holy God who must take action and bring justice against sin, they are given up to the dishonorable passions they have. And in this, they heap up the wrath of God. 
His punishment is for them to be allowed to sin more so that his wrath piles up on them more and more. The holiness of God speaks to God's existence as completely separate from his creation and at the same time to his pure and utterly incorruptible nature. And God is a consuming fire. Deuteronomy 4.24, for the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. Now, this is not jealous like we're often jealous. This is a proper jealousy, like a husband has for his wife when he wants her reputation protected and wants his rights to her loyalty without question. I mentioned earlier how sometimes people will try to make an Old Testament concept stay in the Old Testament, but in our command to be holy, we can't just keep it in the Old Testament. Why? Because it's in the New Testament. 1 Peter 1, 15, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. In our D6 lesson for this week, we also saw an appeal to be holy from the Apostle Paul in Romans 12, 1 and 2. And he said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. A living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Holy, set apart for God. And indeed, if we are in Christ, we are not trying to achieve holiness in the sense of being set apart unto God. We actually have been set apart unto God. Do you see the difference? We're not trying to achieve holiness. He's already made us holy if we're in Christ. He has set us apart for himself. So that we are to be transformed. This is a continuing imperative command that Paul is giving. Do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed. And so as I mentioned, we're going to camp out here in Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 to 11, for the next few weeks. And again, these are the topics, the four topics that we're going to be looking at. They're doctrines, if you want to call them that. Four doctrines or topics we're going to dive into in the next four weeks to help us understand this passage. The holiness of God, which we just brushed the edges of today. Sin, the doctrine of sin. We're going to talk about that. The doctrine of God's wrath. The doctrine of God's sovereignty over everything, including salvation. So hopefully you are beginning to see why it was righteous and just for God to command Israel to be his sword in bringing his wrath upon the seven mentioned nations. The first point, of course, being that God is holy. We have not even begun to touch the surface of what it means that God is holy. And because he is holy, sin against him is a very dangerous thing to the sinner who never repents. This is because God's wrath, as we just looked at, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Because God is holy, he provides a standard for us to keep. When, when we do not keep his laws and his standards or his rules, we are in sin. Sin brings many dangers with it, and the most severe is the wrath of God that is heaped up to those who keep sinning without repenting. 
And finally, God is sovereign over all. He chose Israel, not because of anything special they had done, but simply because it was his choice. And he still chooses today. He's completely sovereign in salvation. And we're going to be weaving together these concepts in the coming weeks. So why does God devote his enemies to destruction? Because he's holy. He will punish sin because his holy wrath is against sinners who do not repent. But in his sovereignty, he saves those he calls his own. So perhaps this morning you're concerned that you may be sinning to the point of being subject to the wrath of God. I have good news for you if you're listening and willing to to listen. That if you are in that condition where you're sinning and you are realizing it, and the Holy Spirit may be even causing you to feel a conviction and a serious concern about your standing for eternity before God, we have good news. The word gospel means good news. That Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. He rose again as proof that we can have eternal life. So if you're feeling that this morning, that concern, you know, back in the old days of the Whitfield you know, crusades and stuff, they had a, an anxious bench at the front. So people who were anxious about the eternity could sit in the front row. I'm not saying that these girls are saying that. But, <laughs> but the point is we ought to listen attentively and be concerned and thinking about where we stand with the Lord. Even when we're secure in our salvation, we want to say, I'm secure in my salvation, therefore I don't want to sin against God. I want to honor him with my life, which is what we were talking about in Sunday school this morning. So there is good news for you. There is hope. We don't have to live right there where the world is. And if we're part of the world and we need to get out of the world, Christ is calling you to put faith in him. If that's you, then you need to act on it. We have elders in this church, myself, we're happy to come and talk to you and try to teach you more about the ways of God. In fact, my elders, will you raise your hand? So Brandon's over here, Ron's over here, Kevin's over here, and I think Brian's here somewhere too. Brian, Brian's a licensed minister with the Christian Missionary Alliance. He can lead you too. Um, and so I encourage you to do that. If the Lord is telling you and you're listening to his word this morning and you realize that you're on the wrong side of God, you can be- become on the right side of God by putting faith in Christ. It will teach you how to learn more about him. So with that, the final answer to every sermon in a sense is how do we react to this if we're not doing it right? To quote R.C. Sproul, (laughs) repent and believe the gospel. That means you turn away from your sin, you ask forgiveness from God, and then you believe. And we, we would love it if you would join us in our family at Oasis Church because we are redeemed by the blood of the Lamb and we celebrate that together. We celebrate what God has done for us and his graciousness and his mercy and we're learning more about him together all the time and it's an awesome time to be at Oasis Church. So we, for those of you that are kind of new here, we, we hope you'll join us.
and we'll see you again. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word this morning.